everybody, Mike and Tim here, and today we are celebrating the birth of our 200th episode. Ladies and gentlemen, it has arrived. We have named it Bruce. And today (laughs) on Bruce, we are so excited to talk to our friend Sky. We've been, we've been, you know, again, I think, I think we care more than anybody else in the world, but um, we've been kind of working our way towards the 200th episode by asking some of our friends about their thoughts on the future of the church and Christianity in America. And it's super interesting conversation. Still more of that today. Sky is a good friend. Um, he and I went to the same college. He He insists he was several years behind me. I don't remember it that way conveniently enough. But um, he's uh, he's got loads of insight. This is a this was a really fun episode, and I think you'll find it uh, super interesting and, and thought provoking. And, and I, I, there were times in the conversation where I just lost track completely of my job as an interviewer because I was you know writing stuff down and, and taking notes. I thought some stuff was so interesting. So I think you'll really enjoy this. And again, we cannot say this enough. Thank you for 40 years of participation in this community. For some, you've been with us the whole way, and I'm sorry. (laughs) For others, you've just joined us recently, and we're so glad that you're here. Um, And uh, some, you know, I I hear from some people, they they kind of tune in, tune out, binge a little bit, and come back. Uh, and, And so we're just honored to play a part in your life. We cannot say thank you enough for all of the feedback and the questions and the concerns and the support and the encouragement. I mean, it really has been an amazing privilege to be a part of uh, this journey. So 200th episode, Bruce. Sky, we, yeah, we shall, name, we shall name it Bruce. Yeah, so here's Bruce, ladies and gentlemen, with Sky Jathani. Hey everybody, here with my friend Sky. Sky, thanks for joining us from your mother's, what is that, living room? Uh, I guess it's a dining room area. <laughs> so so here's what I'm looking at. Um, <laughs> and and Sky was kind enough to let me know it wasn't his office, which pretty quickly, uh, and, oh, and there's the grandfather clock. There it is. <laughs> I don't have one of those in my office. <laughs> So, so this is Sweet Mom's house, and there's a, some sort of gold-framed floral print in the back, and then there's some plates. Like, there's this little plate holder with some plates on it uh-huh. and, and some curtains, and it's just perfect, man. It's just <laughs> perfect, Sky. So we will not edit out in any way, shape, or form the grandmother, uh, the grandfather clock. Is there a grandmother's clock at all? I don't know. Is there a grandmother's clock? Why is it called a grandfather's clock? That should be a thing. I don't know. Um, Anyway, my friend, how are you? What's happening? You've got a, Uh, you've got an app coming out evidently. Yes. We have an app for my daily devotional with God daily, and you can sign up for it even before the app comes out. If you want it with goddaily.com. We're probably, uh, let's see, that'll hopefully be available by the end of June or early July. So Sky does a, it's a daily devotional, right? And, and this is mm-hmm. seven or five days. It's not five business days. daily. I, I started doing it seven days a week. And then I thought this is crazy. Honestly, when I started the, the whole devotional, I thought I would do it for one year and then be done and then take that content and publish a book out of it. And that was uh, five years ago. Oh, so my. I'm still going. So a couple of years into it, I decided I need my weekends a little bit more flexible. So I, uh, I switch it from seven to five days a week. Now, how far ahead do you plan these? I mean, that's that's remarkable. So you're putting out, and that's that could be a drawing, right? That could be several paragraphs. Yeah, well, uh, there's always written content, and some of them okay. also have drawings. But I, I usually have sketched a month in advance. On, I actually print out a calendar, and I write out on every day what the content's going to be. Oh, my goodness. Um, now, actually writing that content, sometimes I get well ahead, and I'm really <laughs> proud of myself. But there are like I'll be completely honest. I don't. I haven't written the one for tomorrow yet. Nice. All right. What's it? What's the topic? Right now we're doing a series on prayer. Oh, Okay. Yeah. So uh, this week we're mostly focusing on not making prayer more complicated than it needs to be. All right. I like that. 
next week the content will be about uh, prayers of confession. Ooh. So obviously when you talk about prayer, you, it gives you opportunity to branch out into many other things like confession right, or right, right. like earlier this week, it was about grace and understanding that God doesn't listen to us because of us or who we are or our abilities to you know, pray a certain way. It's always an act of grace that God willingly accepts and hears us. So yeah, nice. it, it, it's a nice way to both give people practical help in something that virtually everyone says they want to do more of but struggle with. Yeah but also offer a deeper theological vision of prayer that I think is lacking in much of our uh, Christian tradition these days. Oh my goodness. It's one of the biggest questions we get uh, on our, on our email, you know, page is either why pray if God's going to do what he's going to do. Yeah. We, we addressed that praying? a couple weeks ago. See, look at you sky. Mm-hmm. And then you do a weekly, this weekly show, uh, Holy post Right, yeah, and with then, Phil Fisher and sometimes I mean, Christian Taylor. That's uh, that's bro, that's a lot. I love it. And are you working on a book? Uh, I am actually. Ooh. Final final bits and pieces coming together for. We're taking a series that we did last year in the devotional on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're making that into a book. And in a that book series, or, or like no, it'll be a, it'll be a book book. Um, that series, I did a lot of doodles. I sometimes will draw simple little doodles to illustrate the the points I'm making. And so that book will include those drawings as well. And that'll be done with, uh, through Moody publishing. So I don't no know when way. that's coming out. Yeah. Nice. The working title is what if Jesus was serious? Okay. So stay like tuned it. for that. I like it. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm not nearly that much of an overachiever, but I do have something to celebrate, Sky, and that is our 200th episode is coming Which up. Which is amazing. I love Which your show. Amazing. The fact that you've done 200 is is impressive. Well, you you kind of led the pack, bro. You just 7 years of doing this. That's well, that that is that is that's incredible. Yeah, but you got to understand, first of all, if somebody had told me when we started you're going to do this for at least seven years, I would have said no way. Not yeah, not totally. not no way like totally. that though. That that's like like no way. I'm not going to. I'm not in. Keep me out of this mess. Yeah. But yeah. but the the other thing that makes it easier for me and why you deserve more credit is I have a partner with Phil, where we can keep each other going. And when one of us is energized and the other isn't, you kind of kind of feed yeah, off the helps. other person. Yeah. And you 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 have various partners that sit down with you as you record these things, but I mean. Let's be honest. You're you're the one lifting the heavy weight here and the I preparation, and that that's a really tough thing to do week after week after week. And one more bit, like you've addressed, <laughs> you've addressed most of the most controversial theological and cultural issues of our day. Oh man! And at least in my, and I've heard most of these episodes. I have never heard you lose your cool, or uh, be ungracious. Or at least in my book, some people might take offense, <laughs> but I, I am. So the fact that you're able to do that for oh, 200 episodes you. and and exhibit a a, a kind, gracious, uh, but honest reflection on these matters is, I think that's phenomenal. Oh, bro. Well, that was not scripted, and we can enter in the interview right now. <laughs> so thank you, Sky. That means a lot. I appreciate that very much. Um, one of the things we wanted to do, and, and I'm super excited to talk to you about, because I know you think a lot about this stuff, um, is we wanted to do something that was just more, okay, what do we think the future of, of the church in America is going to look like? And, and that can be synonymous with what we think the future of Christianity is going to look like, or we can make those two separate questions. And when I mean future, I mean, within our lifetime. So we're both very young. And in our, in our, in our very early, very earliest stages of the forties, which is a very young decade. Mike, if you and I are young, then we look horrible. (laughs) Well, I didn't say, I didn't say anything about how we look. Now that's a different, that's a different thing. Like if we're middle-aged, if we we call ourselves middle-aged, people will look at us and go, okay. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that that fits. If we say we're young, they're going to ask what happened. (laughs) And we'll just say we had children. That's all. Okay. I'm, you know, I mean, that's, they do that to us. Um, but, but I've been, I've been eager to talk with you because one of the things that you do that I really, really like is that you are looking at systems 
and institutions and equations and culture, bigger things behind the things, right? So we're all upset about abuse and we're all upset about, um, uh, you know, the things that are being discovered that are been ha- that happening in churches. But you're but you come at it. Uh, with a view towards, okay, what, what, what is the setting that is making these things possible, both, both on the church side um, and on the cultural side? And so I love, you know, so all that is to say, I'm super excited to get your thoughts on this. Because um, you've been at the same church for, you said, what, 18 years? That's right. Uh, you've worked for churches, right? Mm-hmm. You've been on staff at churches. You have been a non-paid uh, leader at churches. You've mm-hmm. taught, you know, at, at all sorts of churches around the country, and if not the world, so you've seen you've seen quite a bit. And then, you know, through Christianity Today, there was this incredible and Leadership Journal. There's this kind of broader mindset. So I, I, I'm setting you up to say whatever you're about to say is going to be incredible. And I'm excited. <laughs> what I, I'm excited to hear it, Sky. So let me ask you. Let's within within our lifetime. So let's let's call it fifteen to twenty years. All right, Lord willing, we're still here. Mm-hmm. What uh, what's the church going to look like in its healthiest forms? Oh wait, that you just added a whole caveat there. With, okay, okay. All right, let's start. Let's start. Let's start. What's the church going to look like? Well, because, <laughs> we'll go healthy. here's the dilemma with your your question. There's what do I think or we think the church will look like, and then there's what should the church look like. Oh, fair point. And those are very different things. Yes. Um, All right. So let's do what do we think it will look like first? Okay. All right. So let's let's trace out. So fifteen to twenty years from now, what do you think it will look like? Well, there's some there's some very obvious things that I don't know if we need to spend much time on. Like, and these are trends that are just true of America in general. It's gonna the church is gonna be less white. Yes. Right, because America is becoming more and more uh, non-white through immigration and, and birth rates and things like that. That's number one. Um, the church will obviously be much more millennial and Gen Y because those are the folks who are coming of age and leadership. Um, so I don't know if we need to spend tons of time on, on those dynamics. I, one of the more intriguing things that I think is happening is, throughout my life, there has been this, um, this general rule of thumb um, that conservative evangelical churches, and when I say conservative, I mean theologically conservative evangelical churches, mm-hmm. are growing or have grown, whereas mainline, more progressive, more liberal theological churches have been declining. Right? That's yes. that's kind of the way it's been viewed for a long time. Yeah. Uh, that is changing, and it, so here's here's my my first point. I think that there is going to be it's um it's kind of like the empire strikes back. I think progressive Christianity is striking back. I think, I think progressive mm. Christianity is actually one. They just don't realize it. Ooh. All right. So progressive so, theologically, but what do you mean by that? Well, when you look at the stats that I've seen over the last couple of years about people who attend evangelical conservative, theologically conservative churches, like mm-hmm. Southern Baptist churches, you know, just your run-of-the-mill non-denominational yeah. evangelical churches. When you actually look at the statistics and and um, data on what those church-going Christians believe, it actually looks like liberal progressive Christianity. Oh, really? So I would oh, argue wow. that over the last 30 years, while evangelical institutions have beaten mainline institutions, mainline theology has actually beaten evangelical theology. Whoa. And so when you project forward, I can think you give, if, can you give a couple examples of, of, yeah, of that? Like, I mean, the, there was a fascinating study that came out from the Southern Baptists from Lifeway a few years ago hmm. that found the majority of church going evangelicals do not hold Orthodox Christian beliefs, hmm. right? The authority of scripture, the Trinity, right. um, the exclusivity of the gospel, most don't hold those beliefs. And when you take younger church-going evangelicals, meaning people under 30, the vast majority of them support same-sex marriage, which is mm-hmm. something more associated with mainline progressive Christianity than with conservative evangelical Christianity. Yeah, no um, when you look at uh, you know, views on hell, views on exclusivity, views on universalism, the majority mm. of church-going evangelicals look more like progressive Christians than they do like conservative evangelical Christians. Oh. So so here's my point. 
conservative evangelical institutions are doing better today than mainline institutions are doing, but at actually making disciples, hmm. the people in those churches are being shaped far more by progressive cultural values and even progressive Christian values than they are by conservative evangelical values. Boom. So progressive Christianity has been at war with conservative Christianity for the last hundred years. The conservative institutions have won, but the progressive Christianity has actually won the hearts and minds of the people, not yeah. the conservatives. So that's what I mean. I think that's going to yep. continue. Yep. Um, and when I look at the pragmatism of especially non-denominational megachurches, hmm. their survival and their ability to grow and thrive and keep the coffers full and people on staff depends on not becoming too differentiated from the popular cultural views. And I think a lot of those institutions are going to have to go more and more towards progressive theological views in order to keep people engaged and coming. Hmm. And they would deny that today. But I think if you're talking 15, 20 years timeline, like you're talking about, you're going to see a ton of those churches um, equivocate on issues of sexuality, of gender, of gay marriage, um, probably exclusivity. Hmm. views on the Old Testament. A lot of that stuff, I think, is going to become much more in line with progressive Christianity, but they're hmm. going to continue to call themselves non-progressive Christianity. Right, so th right, that's right. that's one of my predictions that I think wow. we're heading toward. Oh, bro, that's super interesting. Because, and there will, be, uh, there will be a reaction against that, too, which we can talk about as well. Oh, there already is, right? I mean, we're right. already yeah. the, the entrenched male... Um, uh, maybe usually reformed sort of pushback, right. but, but there, there is a, I, I just think there has to be some blowback against all of the abuse that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Like the thing, the, the, the conservative institutions ha have won until you start peeling back layers. Right. And not that this isn't true of progressive institutions either, but, but they weren't trumpeting family values the whole time in their corruption. Right. And, and then, I mean, you just, you just, in our conversation part of this, re referenced another instance of, of just awfulness. I opened up my Twitter feed, and here's an 18-year-old here's a youth worker having sex with a 12-year-old girl, you know? And oh. you're, you're just like, and this is so common, we don't even, I, I don't even, I can't even emotionally pause over that because there are just so many other things similar to that that are happening and so that makes that makes really interesting sense what do you think the pushback toward, towards that could look like I love it. <laughs> that's the so awesome. signal that we've been 15 minutes um the pushback to the to the abuses i'm sorry the pushback to the progressivizing oh, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. of of evangelical christianity so I, th I think in, a, in general, this is true of American society, American cultural in general, and will certainly be reflected in the church. I think you're going to see a, a significant rise in fundamentalism. And when I, when I say fundamentalism, I don't just mean conservative fundamentalism. Hmm. I mean liberal fundamentalism as well. Um, this, yeah. The middle ground is quickly eroding, and people are being forced further and further to the fringes. So you're seeing it already where there is this kind of neo-Puritan, reformed, conservative, not just conservative theologically, but very conservative culturally hmm. movement going on in the church, which is a reaction to the progressivism. But there's also a, an intransigent, uh, absolutist form of progressive Christianity that's coming along mm -hmm. that is saying you, you, you have to be 100% with us too. And there's very little uh, accommodation for people who don't occupy those camps. You see that politically. Yeah, boy, um, no kidding. We're seeing it on college campuses. So that's, I, I think that's a, a mark of what's happening in our society. We could talk about why, and you'll see it in the church as well. But yeah, you're going to continue to see this highly complementarian, neo-Puritan, um, absolute. And I don't think it's just about baby boomers who are aging and kind of hanging on with their, with their last breath to, to that form of Christianity, but there are, there are mm -hmm. plenty of people our age and younger who I think are attracted to that, hmm. um, that will make a, make a run at it. And yeah. there's and not just because it's a reaction to progressivism, but also that form of Christianity and the structure it takes is very deeply satisfying to a certain personality type hmm. and particularly to certain, uh, male leaders who need 
to need who need affirmation. Mm-hmm. And so as long as that need is there, that form of, of faith will be appealing to a certain segment of the population. Yeah. Even though it gets exposed over and over and over again. Yeah. Now that, that totally makes sense. Do you, do you see churches still having tax exempt status in 15 to 20 years? That's a good question. Um, I, I hope so, but I fear it. Let, let me say that if, if churches do continue to have tax exempt status in 15 to 20 years, it won't be thanks to the church. <laughs> it, and I, Boy, and this, is gonna sound, this is going to sound crazy, but it will be thanks to religious minorities like Muslims and Jews mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Hindus and Buddhists, because those groups uh, also benefit from tax exempt status. Mm-hmm. And if they actually start to organize and have some kind of political pressure, they may convince those who are really against traditional white Christianity to lay off that push mm. to get rid of tax exemption. So mm. um, I, I do fear it's very threatened by the, by the financial abuses that have been going on. I, a lot yeah, of absolutely. Christian leaders and mega churches and, and certain denominations. Yeah. Um, it'll be religious minorities that may save the church from its financial ruin. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really good. I, cause I, I frankly just see a day where, you know, we just should cut all religious funding budgets by like 80% to, 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 uh, to anticipate the future where people are no longer incentivized to give money to churches or that churches have tax breaks. I mean, I just don't, mm-hmm. I hope you're right. And I hope that that's still true, but you're but I, I, I just think the corruption is so awful. Even if we do have tax exempt statuses. I don't, I just don't know how many millennials and Gen Z folks are going to give money to these, to the big institutions anymore. You know, right. you, well, you, th- I mean, that raises another issue. Do you think that most people are going to feel loyal to large institutions for their religious needs or spiritual development? Absolutely not. Because absolutely not. I mean, you, you have, you, I think are meeting a spiritual need through your podcast. Hopefully we are to a degree as well on ours or through my mm-hmm. daily devotional and people can give to those things yeah, you know, three, four, five dollars. It's not the same as being a part of a church or denomination where you're giving five to ten percent of your income every year to keep right. these behemoths alive, right? So people right. might still give, but it won't look the same as it did in the past. Absolutely, and and I think there is a, a definite, especially as we're opening up to the to seeing real needs in the world, the the plea from the pastor whose salary is paid by your donations right. looks looks increase no matter how graciously framed, looks increasingly like self-preservation and self-interest right. rather than, hey, we're moving the mission of Jesus, you know, into the world. And um, and so I, I suspect because I mean I, I am shocked and that we have a community that is incredibly generous in supporting the podcast. I mean, that, that has been one of the things I would never have seen coming that I wonder if um, I, I, there seems to be an unhooking of this idea that your, your first tithe goes to the church to now the idea that, that um, there there's uh, through technology and other means there's the, those constrictions just aren't operative, right? The church can't make the compelling case why it deserves your first 10% right. as a force for good in the world in the way that it could say 20 years ago. Agreed. And I'm, I suspect that somebody who's giving $5 to the Vox podcast is not doing it for the, the tax deduction. Yes, <laughs> right? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They're compelled by the mission or they're benefiting from the mission. And I just, as somebody, and I love the church, I mean, I'd still love to pastor at some point, but it'll be, it, it would just look so differently from kind of what it's looked like that um, I, I just don't, you know, I think that I almost want to say that losing our tax exempt status might be, might be a good thing. Because it forces people to be bi- bivocational, mm-hmm. it gets a, it gets away from this ministry. I, I'm in full time ministry if I work for a church, and you're not if you don't. Kind of thing, um, and it, it would certainly get rid of a lot of the fluff and the extras. Um, you know that you know, yeah, you know, the what, fog the fog machines or the whatever. 
I totally agree with you on that front. What concerns me is all of the the social benefit that the church brings to a community both locally and around the world that would be harmed if it lost tax exempt status, like caring for the homeless, caring for children, caring for orphans and widows, caring for the sick. Caring, I mean, there's enormous things the church does around the world that would be significantly hurt if suddenly 10, 15, 20% of the revenues had to go to pay taxes. But, but yes, maybe, but, maybe. I, 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 could, but wouldn't you say, I don't know if this is true or not, but I can point to organizations that are, that are much more effective in reaching and ministering than church organizations. Now, I'm sure there are ex- massive exceptions to this, no question about it. But in the American consciousness, when I think of when I think of church, and again, I'm totally biased here. I don't think of public good. Mm-hmm. I think of I think of um, any public good that happens is usually incidental to <laughs> to the the major thrust of a, of an established church, which is self preservation at some point. Yeah. Well, and that's the, I think this is where you see the the gap between relatively affluent suburban white evangelical churches and go go into an urban context where good there are there are few thriving functioning social institutions and where a church is the only one that's really thriving and functioning in that neighborhood or community and it's providing the health clinic it's providing the daycare it's providing the school it's for you know that's where a church is essential yeah i mean honestly i live in a you're right I live in a fairly affluent suburb. If if three quarters of the churches shut their doors here, it might hurt people socially and, and, and spiritually, but the functioning of this community will not be affected. Right. Right. But yeah. you go you go twenty-five miles from here to the west side of Chicago at Lawndale Community Church or or um, Missionary Fellowship Baptist Church on the south side, if one of those churches shuts down, mm. It would it would be a massive hit to that community because of the, yeah. the things that church is involved in beyond just what may occur on Sunday morning. Oh, so that's really good. That's what I, that's what I mean. Like some of yeah. those churches would be so the, their efforts in that in those communities are so huge and so beneficial that for them to suddenly get hit with a huge tax bill every year is going to disproportionately hurt those communities in a way it wouldn't hurt mine. Yeah. No, that's really good because I think I'm operating almost exclusively from the suburban white large church sort of you know where mission does happen and hallelujah right for that but it's but it's more like existential drugs for rich people than it is you know true mission you know what i mean yeah um, absolutely and, and so no but that's but that's a really good perspective so that would be that would be i mean that we have a church in columbus that's huge but has a free clinic and free um, mm-hmm. uh, immigration lawyers and fr- i mean just right. an unbelievable amount of social good but that, but that seems more the exception in my experience, you know, yeah. than the than the rule. Well, and again, that's that's the luxury of churches where the the culture and the society is doing what it's supposed to be doing. The church doesn't have to do all those things, right? And so, right. yeah, makes right. sense. So, all right, so we we see kind of a mainstreaming of uh, main, and I'm using that word. Um, but 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 evangelical Christianity looks more and more like progressive Christianity, to which well, many yeah. many many people will say yes, hallelujah for that, mm-hmm. uh, and and there will be pushback. You were going to clarify something. Yeah, I think the trend that I've seen, at least in the last, let's say, 150 years of American church history, is there's this repeating cycle of uh, a polarization happens in the church. We saw this 100 years ago with the modernist fundamentalist mm-hmm. division, right? Where one side gets pulled to the left and, and starts abandoning some of the historic teachings of the church in order to accommodate to cultural norms. And the other side reacts with a retrenchment into fundamentalism and, you know, or, and, and it, these two things polarize, which leaves a vacuum in the middle. And then something emerges in the middle to fill that vacuum. And in mm. around World War II, post-World War II, that, that thing that emerged in the middle was neo-evangelicalism. It was mm. Billy Graham and Carl Henry and Ockengay and you know all those folks who said, no, 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 we need to stay culturally engaged and hold the Bible seriously. Mm. And over the course of 50 years, they won. But now that thing that was in the middle, that, that evangelicalism, has been tor- is being torn to the poles 
right. and you're seeing you know a, a neo progressivism and a neo fundamentalism that's going to happen and I, and I hope that there will be another new vacuum that emerges in the middle and something that's birthed to fill mm. that vacuum and 50 years from now that new thing may well polarize and split apart and you just kind of right. have this it repeats over and over and over again and part of that's beautiful and normal and, and expected but when you're in the midst of the polarization cycle it's oh. really painful and horrible which i think is where we are right now right so do you think part of the reason people are deconstructing to use that term faith is because because it's being ripped apart in the two in the in the um, into the two poles. In other words, um, we we can no longer sit comfortably uh, as evangelicalism is being exposed on the one hand, um, but but also then um, deconstructed theologically on the other. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a lot of it, but it's it's also mirroring the broader polarization that's happening in society. Right. Um, so it's not happening in a vacuum. This is not just a religious phenomenon. It's a cultural one. And we can get into the dynamics. Of, like going back again to the prior cycles, I don't think you have the emergence of mid-20th century evangelicalism in the, in the United States without the Cold War happening at the same time. Hmm. Like that, that was a huge, huge factor in the emergence of Billy Graham and modern American evangelicalism. So there are new dynamics happening in the 21st century, like national nationalism. We just saw the elections in Europe this week mm -hmm. where nationalists and populists are taking over again. We're seeing that same thing happening. So you, those new dynamics are happening. I don't know exactly what emerges in the middle yeah. today without cold war Christianity being an option like that. I think the mm. there's, we saw the, the residue of cold war Christianity from the 20th century. That's going to die out with the baby boomers, but I don't know exactly what that new phenomenon is that takes over. And we can get into what cold war Christianity means or what I mean by that. But yeah, um, I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to finish that thought. And I'd love to hear what you mean by that. Cause I think I, I know what you're saying, but I want to make sure. Well, I mean, one thing like when I was growing up in the late seventies and eighties, even early nineties, um, I love the James Bond movies, <laughs> right? My dad basically raised me on those movies, which explains mm. why I have so many issues. But, um, <laughs> like one thing that was so great about those early James Bond movies is, and, and the cold war era in general was, it was clear who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. Yeah. Right. It was capitalist versus communist. It was the, the East versus the West. It was, you know, America versus the Soviet Union. It was Rocky versus a Drago. Uh, like, yes, yes. Yeah, it, it was just so cut and dry. And I think that what that did to, to American Christianity was very similar. It was to say, hey, mm. anything that is uh, God-fearing, Western, American, Christian, capitalist was automatically good and mm. God-ordained. And everything that was socialist, communist, atheist was automatically bad. And anything that even came close to that was bad, which meant if you were on the left politically, even though you weren't a communist, you were closer to being a communist than you were not being right. a communist. So that got bad. It just it painted the world in really stark, clear us versus them yeah. ways of thinking. And I think there's a lot culture of culture war. I mean, it reflected in the right, culture war. Exactly. It, it became so Cold War Christianity became culture war Christianity. Bo Bo and. And I'll make it there, devotional for tomorrow. There, there's a, an older generation, our parents' generation, who I think still carries that general way of thinking absolutely about the world and about their faith. Now, there are people our age and younger who have that way of thinking. I don't think it's because of cultural values so much as just brain chemistry. Some people mm -hmm. just have a more black and white way of thinking that mm -hmm. resonates more with that. But right now, we live in a culture that's way beyond the Cold War way of thinking it's, it's game not of thrones it's game it's, of thrones christianity right. it's multilateral there's yes there's nobody unsullied yes right and so you know we all know people from different religious backgrounds and, and, and racial backgrounds and cultural backgrounds because of the immigration changes that happened in the 1960s and all. we can that's a great topic we should talk about sometime but now the, <laughs> the world is way 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 more complicated and it's not as easy for me just to say me and my tribe are always right. That's right. And you and your tribe are always wrong. And the, the modern American evangelical church is still primarily postured for Cold War Christianity. And it's not raising up and training disciples how to navigate faithfully 
in a way more complicated cultural dynamic. What would that what would that look like? So let's contrast it for a second. If I'm raising because this is really good, Sky. If I'm raising my children in Cold War Christianity, what am I doing and what does that look like? Versus well, if I were raising my children in Game of Thrones Christianity. Yeah. Um, what am I doing and what does well, that look the, like? The, the, simple, the simple answer to the first part is if I'm raising my kids in Cold War Christianity, then what I'm telling them is people who believe like us and look like us and worship like us and live like us are on God's side. And, and the people who are not like us are not, not. on God's side. <laughs> They're not on God's side. And best case scenario, we should want to change and convert them. Worst case scenario, you got to stay away from them because they're a threat. Mm -hmm. And so it's more about isolating, protecting, separating. I think, frankly, this is the great appeal of Donald Trump to a lot of Cold mm -hmm. War-minded Christians. Mm -hmm. Obviously, obviously, he's not making the Russians or the Soviets into the bad guys. That's still the, <laughs> but but his way of his rhetoric is very much yeah America culture first war. culture war. The Chinese yeah. are bad. The the immigrants coming in are bad. They're taking yep. from us. It's us versus them. And there's a yep. there's a mindset that resonates with that. Going yeah, that's a simpler way of understanding the world. And the complicated vision is just exhausting. And I don't have the yeah. energy to keep it up. Yeah. So the flip side, the, the post-Cold War form of Christianity is it's it's rather than a, a, a boundary, a boundary Christianity, it's a center set Christianity, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? It's saying, here's the center of who we are and what we believe. And you're going to encounter all kinds of people and scenarios that orbit that at different altitudes. Right. Some are, right, some are going right. to be real close. That's great. Some are going to be way out, but you can find something in all these different people yep. that you can affirm. And bless, and there's going to be others who may well call themselves Christians that you're going to realize, well, they they say they're part of my tribe, but when I look at the way they're acting and the way they treat mm -hmm. other people and the way they're behaving, I go, ah, I don't, that's not right. So it takes a far more careful yeah. level of discernment than we're used to. Yes. Um, so yes. that's the difference, I think. No, and th and that and that reflects even how you understand what the Bible is and what the Bible's for. Right. So you have, so the Bible for me growing up was, this is where you get answers for life. This is, you know, they had a little thing in the back that said, if you're feeling depressed, here's the verse. If you're feeling right. anxious, here's the verse. Uh, when I got into to college and then, then into seminary, it was, here's how you defend this view against these views. And, and, um, very much a an approach to it that of course honored relational context but the primary emphasis was how you use the bible um in 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 discussions and in, in public forums and whatever else um and the and, and so now we're reading this stuff you and I have talked about the Walton book but even Pete Enns has stuff on it in his latest book about the idea of the bible isn't uh, certainty isn't the goal. The goal is faith, rather. And um, and the goal is wisdom. It's to teach us wisdom. It's not to teach us clarity. Right. Um, although clarity can come from wisdom, but that's the, the goal isn't that I just have an open and shut case on every moral issue of the day. The goal, rather, is to be formed into the kind of person who makes decisions that honor God and, and you know, honor the, our, our identity as God's children. But it's a, it's a vastly different approach that I think honors some of the complexity. But it's super confusing to those of us raised in Cold War Christianity, yeah. uh, because we don't we we've never been given permission, and it almost feels blasphemous to raise some of the questions and to think some of the things about the Bible that are being suggested, right? Uh, because we're we're now in danger of becoming the them. Well, and this is this is exactly the the problem is when when you talk about a, a Pete Enns or a John Walton, uh, who I don't want to put them on the same same page because I know they they have strong disagreements with each other. Um, but the, this call to a more nuanced, wise way of engaging Scripture, for example, that's mm -hmm. that's part of that gray middle group that is that's saying, right. and and either side wants to pull you to the the comforts of fundamentalism, right. Both on left either, and either side on either yes. on either side, right? So, That's so good. And you know, there's other people outside of kind of spiritual circles who have been talking about the the unprecedented diversity of the United States. 
And we are attempting something as a society that's never been attempted or successfully done in the history of civilization. Is that your mom? That is, that is my dog who's with me, who's hacking over here. Um, uh, anyway, the thing that's never been attempted is, is, is a democracy that is this diverse. Oh, that's true. Right? It's never yeah. been tried before. Hmm. And, and part of the reason why it's never been tried and never succeeded is it takes, it takes people who are willing to live with a lot of cognitive dissonance, hmm. right? With a lot of ambiguity and, and disjointedness. And that's just not how we're wired. We, yeah. So one thing I found really helpful, um, there was this sociologist named Galen, G-A-H-L-E-N, I think was his last name. And he talked about how every, every society has foreground and background decisions. Hmm. So foreground decisions are the decisions that the individual makes consciously, like, you know, what to wear and what, what career I'm going to pursue or job, whatever, those kinds of decisions. Background decisions are decisions the individual never thinks about because society's basically made those decisions for them. That's right. Right? Is individualism a good thing? Right. Um, one analogy I heard is like when we were young, ordering a cup of coffee was pretty simple, right? You go in, the, <laughs> it was decaf, regular cream and sugar. Those are basically your options, right? right? Now, because most of the coffee decisions were background decisions that were made by the marketplace and the growers and all that, this is your coffee. That's it. Now you go into a Starbucks and there's like 30,000 permutations of coffee available. Oh, wow. And, and his argument is that in a consumer society, in order to make more and more revenue, you have to take background decisions that used to be made for you and force them into foreground decisions where the consumer makes them for themselves. Right. Wow. So another wow. more, more pointed example is when you and I were growing up, I never really, it, it, the thought never occurred to me, am I a boy or a girl? Mm -hmm. Right. Because society told me I was a boy. And yeah. Or what bathroom should I use? I never thought about, or what is marriage? Like I, th those are questions no one asked because they were background decisions the society made for you. Today, every young person growing up has to ask themselves, am I a boy or a girl? Mm -hmm. Every person has to ask themselves, what do I think marriage is? Mm -hmm. Right. All so, and the, here's the problem is the, the more background decisions a society has, the more stable it is. Oh, wow. And the more foreground decisions a society have, the more yep. destabilizing it becomes because there's fewer things we all agree on. Oh, my goodness. This is right? genius. Who, what, Galen? Ga Galen, right? So now here's where it really pays off. When you have forced more and more decisions into foreground, it exhausts people, mm -hmm. right? Because I have to think about everything all the time. Am I using the right uh, pronouns? Am I, am I referring to these different ethnicities and religious groups with the proper language? Am I you know, doing everything the way it's where all these decisions, like when you walk into a, a Starbucks to order a drink and you're frozen, it's called the tyranny of, of choice, right? There's so mm -hmm. many decisions. I just want somebody to make the decisions for me. Yeah. He says, this is exactly the moment when fundamentalism becomes so attractive because the, the totally. blessing, the blessing and comfort of fundamentalism is it takes oh. a whole bunch of those foreground decisions mm -hmm. and pushes them into the background again. I don't have yes. to think about, what marriage is. I don't have to think about what's male and female. I don't have to think about all these decisions that society is telling me I need to think about all the time mm -hmm. because my church or my group or my political party or whatever the fundamentalism is, has already told me what to think. Oh. So I don't have to worry about it anymore. Oh, that That's where I think we are as a society. And Dude. so I, I think as more and more Christians become exhausted of living in that gray middle messiness that you and I yeah. are in all the time, yep. more and more of them are going to go, I'm sick of this. I give up. And they're just going to go to either fundamentalism on the right or fundamentalism on the left. Totally. So that they just, can just oh. relax again. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, think about, again, I translate this immediately into Cold War Christianity, Game of Thrones Christianity, or post-Cold War Christianity. I like my Game of Thrones Christianity better. Is that just with the... like more dragons and nipples? Is that it? No, I've not. <laughs> I've not seen Game of Thrones. I've read. I read the first couple of books, and then I realized it was going to be like a forty-year series, and I'd give up. <laughs> but but the the th surprising thing in the books was that there, no one's good, yeah. um, and everyone's compromised, and everyone. It's all a power play, and there's so much deceit, and he pulls these shocking things out of nowhere to characters that you love. 
And um, it was just, it was brilliant because it reflected real life, right? And it was, it was, it was where like fantasy literature. So you have the Tolkien, like there was a guy named Terry Brooks that I grew up on. Um, and, and, and they're relatively straightforward, good and, and bad characters, right? Here are the good guys, here are the bad guys. Um, but what Game of Thrones did was it, it just flipped that whole thing upside down. And you, and all of a sudden you find yourself rooting for people that, uh, that, uh, you know, in traditional stories would be considered absolutely evil. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, that's absolutely true about the way that we're culturally being taught to think these days. But, but I even go, okay, so, so my, like part of my background decision-making in evangelical Christianity, as it was expressed through its cold war posture was that the old Testament's the word of God. Mm-hmm. And that Jesus affirms the Old Testament and the Jesus comes and, uh, you know, whatever. Now I have to have a view on, on the first seven words of Genesis, you know, in order to have a view of the first chapter of Genesis, in order to have a view of the first two chapters of Genesis, in order to have a view about whether Adam was literal or Eve was literal and how I should read right. what was traditionally called the fall narrative, which then totally affects the promise to Abram. And you have divide <laughs> violence issues and you have unjust laws and you have patriarchy. And now all of this, all of this is coming at us so, so hard that in, in our Christianity, and I'm just echoing what you're saying, but applying it to how people are wrestling through the Bible now, because yeah. part of the background was, well, yeah, I don't understand this, but God's God and God's going to do whatever God's going to do. And, you know, whatever. Um, but now there's this just incredible exposure to all of these issues, tensions, paradoxes, contradictions, whatever you want to call them that are forcing us. And I I mean, I've just, I literally have had people just say, listen, um, is, is it, (laughs) I I, am tired of discerning. I just want to know, is this okay? Is this person, can I read this person? Are they safe? Right. Right. Or, or not. And um, so no one, you know, if you read Rob Bell, you are automatically a heretic. If you, John MacArthur, you're automatically a good, you know, on the good side. I mean, it's, it's this, uh, labeling that, 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 that fundamentalism produces that is again, seeking comfort in the midst of all this craziness. Yeah. Right. And, and is it okay? So I'm just playing this out to say, okay, so if uh, a church church in the future is going to look more fundamentalism, more fundamentalist, on both of these sides, because that isn't going away. Right. And we're cheering for the new thing in the middle that says the answer isn't hardening in either direction, but pulling the good from both and living in discernment and wisdom or whatever. Um, but but what, what, what then does that dynamic uh, p- produce in, in this respect? So if... The mainliner, the progressive, I'm speaking so horribly right now. I'm trying to find the right words. Um, if the, the quote progressive side of theology becomes what is normally thought to be evangelical Christianity, and then there's a hardening on the other side. So does the church in 20 years just look like, you know, the, the church in the early 19th century with the battle lines redrawn again and utter clarity about who's in and who's not, um, uh, do we have to go through this whole deconstructing cycle again? Uh, yes, but there will be at least one huge, huge difference. And that is the early 20th century did not have digital technology. Amen to that. Right. So they, yep. <laughs> they, they, they were primarily aggregating the left and right into uh, denominational structures, traditional denominational structures. The advent of digital technology and the democratization of communication, I, I mean, that that throws a monkey wrench into this whole thing. Yeah. Um, so I, my hunch is, well, there's a lot to this. I don't know. One of the reasons why the middle, the emergence of neo-evangelicalism in the middle of the 20th century, kind of Billy Graham, middle ground evangelicalism. One of the things that made that possible was there was massive economic incentive to reach that group of people. Hmm. Um, here's what in I mean. What, in, in what, yeah, go ahead. So let's think about politics. Our politics has become much, much, much more polarized. And when we were kids, the way 
a presidential candidate would win an election would be, of course, get the nomination of their party, but then they would both, from the Democrats and Republicans, they would tack toward the middle. And the goal was whoever could reach those middle sway right. voters <coughs> yep. would win the president. There was the famous uh, Reagan Democrats in 1980, right? right? So right. these were blue-collar union folks from Rust Belt states who um, traditionally had voted for Democrats, but they were winnable. And so Reagan kind of appealed to them, and he won those middle people, and that's why he got the presidency. Bill Clinton did the same thing in, in 92, yeah. right? He moved toward the middle. He won that middle ground to become president. Well, since 2000, the strategy from both political parties has been exactly the opposite. It has been win the nomination of your party, and then rather than tack toward the middle, try to really inflame the base of your party, the most extreme elements on the right and the left. And the way you win today is by uh, just getting more of your people to the polls, right? Mm. Freak them out about gay marriage or freak them out about racism or freak them out about uh, you know what you know whatever the issue is that the other guy is going to do and that's how you, you it's no longer about playing to the middle and the same thing is happening religiously and the reason why it can happen and this was one of the big innovations of barack obama's campaign in 2008 was they were the first campaign to really use precision digital marketing tools to find exactly mm -hmm. the voters they wanted to get them out of the poll mm -hmm. and what digital technology allows you to do is find your exact customer, your exact follower, that you are going to customize your product to reach and get them to where you want. Like, if you are, um, I don't know, if you're, if you're a 50-year-old man who is devoted to Mickey Mouse and you, you love My Little Pony and, I don't know, Mag, Magna Comics or something like that, like, you, you can find the one other person in, in a 300 mile radius that shares those views now because of the internet, right? You can micro yeah. precision. So all this to say, today you can have a sustainable religious movement without appealing to people in the middle, hmm. right? American hmm. business used to appeal to the, the general consumer in the middle because they couldn't be more focused than that. Yeah. So the reason why evangelicalism could thrive in the middle of the 20th century is because there was this large pool of people religiously in the middle that they could appeal to and we could sell books to them and we could make churches that appeal to them and they we didn't know exactly who they were but we knew they weren't extreme right and they weren't extreme left mm -hmm. well today that's no longer the case we don't have to appeal to the middle ground to have a sustainable oh, movement that's so good sky you can have a sustained religious movement only appealing to people on the extreme right or the extreme left mm -hmm. and so the economic incentive is not there for the middle ground anymore and with digital technology becoming more and more refined, we can get more and more niched about who we're reaching. And, <laughs> and, and that, that's scary because both just like our politics, it's, it's eroding the middle and forcing those of us who were in the middle to now pick which yeah. side are we going to go to. Yeah. So that's the part that kind of worries me is the economic incentives that kept denominations more um, even keeled, broadly orthodox, mm. um, out of the political fray, you know, those incentives are gone now. And, wow. and it's largely because of digital technology. You know, Sky, this may be the worst interview I've ever done. <laughs> because, no, 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 because I'm trapped, like I'm, I'm absorbing this so much that I'm, I'm forgetting I'm interviewing and what I'm doing is just thinking about it. And so like, like, I didn't even know the question I was trying to ask last time. I just started talking because I knew it was my turn. Um, bro, this is so good. Oh my word. And just, I mean, what, what, what dawns on me is, are just the ramifications for how you make disciples now and how you parent. And I mean, it just isn't enough to announce our rightness and call it a day. Right. Um, it's such a different world. Oh. Bro, this is really good. I mean, seriously. Well, so let ahead. me ask. Let me ask you. I mean, I have okay, nothing. Okay, yes, you do. You definitely do. Um, despite all, I mean, w w things are changing rapidly, obviously, because of technology and all the stuff we've already talked about. What do you see emerging in the culture that actually gives you hope? Ooh, now that. See, if I were a real interviewer, I'd have led with that question. Um, things that give me hope. Well. 
the 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 cliche answer is always the true one, which is I I I'm seeing people doing um, such courageous things to try to hold and stake out middle ground. That I mean, we've had several guests on who identify as gay and have committed themselves to a traditional sexual ethic um, and to live in celibacy. And they reject the conservative impulses to, well, you know, salvation means we turn you into heterosexuals and, um, and you know, you should not identify as gay. That's not fundamental to your identity and blah, 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 blah. And then they reject the, well, just if you have those desires, it'd be wrong to suppress them. And they live in this weird middle place that there's something, you know, even if, even if I don't agree with everything, they live in this middle place that I find so appealing because the more I, the more I wrestle kind of with Jesus in his context, the more I I'm seeing him live in this middle place. That's so difficult to maintain. Um, so that gives me hope people, the, the, the community that's built up around some podcasts. I mean, there, there is, there is, I think, a fairly significant tribe of people who aren't falling prey to the to the the binaries, who want to wrestle in discerning ways with some of this stuff. I mean, there's some content and scholarship being thrown out there that is absolutely crazy. I think I think there is a movement to try new forms of what we would typically typically call church. I think that that gives me lots of hope. What I saw even happen with our own Vox community. Um, and the, and the polarized people that could still gather around the table, man, that was, that was unbelievably compelling. What I'm seeing from my kids is compelling because they're learning just in virtue of, 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 of being in the world. They're learning to think in these ways that I, that I never, no one ever told me about these things, right? I was never, it was, there was so much in the background. I never had to wrestle with like, as you say, questions of sexuality and how do you love people um, when, when you're uh, in situations that are really uncomfortable. I mean, the first day of junior high, my, my daughter gets asked out by another girl and, you know, <laughs> like not, not for a play date. Correct. And, yeah. and, and, you know, of all the scenarios, you know, we hadn't, but because we, we, we have many, many, uh, gay friends and, and hosted folks in our houses and they've, they've recognized the, the complexity of some of these issues, right? I mean, she's able in her own way to sort of try to put this together and navigate it. And so I just have tons of hope around um, those sorts of things. I just see so much social good being done by people who are no longer waiting for the blessings of the institutions, right? So people are, people are just exiting the institutions like crazy. And, and ultimately they're beginning to trust that the way that of, of God working in the world is actually, um, is actually true. In other words, and what I'm trying to say is, uh, the thing that, the thing that is lacking among people our age and up is the courage to believe that the slow hidden growth of the kingdom, um, and the power that that slow hidden growth requires of us to forsake that we would actually trust the way of Jesus as much as we trust the words mm. of Jesus in the world. Amen. Right. So, so there's a deep, like that, that, that it's like, it's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. It's, it, and it doesn't need our political um, uh, hatred and animosity. It does not need our, I mean, right. I mean, it just like we can rest Right. That the, the, there's no resting among my Christian friends on either side. There's no and I don't mean resting in terms of passivity. I just mean like simple confidence mm -hmm. that that the kingdom is, is flourishing and is beautifully at work in the most unexpected of places. And it doesn't need our anger uh, in order to to be brought forward. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, I, there's just a deep. I just don't see that sense of like the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Well, they're going to grow together for a while, guys. And guess what? It's not your job to pull the weeds or e even to identify them, right? Now, that doesn't mean we don't work against evil. Of course we work against evil. But it does mean that there, there just doesn't have to be this self-righteous anger on both sides 
in the name of Jesus to accomplish his good work. And so, so whenever I see people who are embodying that sort of just it's simple trust that the kingdom is at hand, baby, and Aslan is on the move and it's okay. It really is okay. Those people are like desert flowers, man. I mean, there's just something about them that is so unique and different. And I keep finding these people in the weirdest places, right? Uh, totally outside of the structures and forms of su- sort of traditional church. And those people give me hope. I mean, that's a long answer, but off the top of my head, I'm like, no, I'm re- I'm actually really hopeful about this whole thing. Yeah, like, I'm I, really hopeful. I'm glad you're you're kind of bringing us to that point because we can talk talk all day about all the problems and all the challenges and all the changes and everything. But I, I also I I find I think what's happening right now is an enormously positive development. Yes, um, because yes. I think it, it's going to create enough Boy. silence and space for true authentic disciples of Jesus to shine. And, and that is going to Boom. be so beautiful and so attractive. I, I, I may have told you this story before. Um, it was about 15 years ago, maybe a little less. I was a young editor at Leadership Journal and I, I had to go out to a, a pastor's conference in San Diego. And this was like at the height of the emerging church stuff. National Pastors Conference, baby. That's the one. That's the one. I was probably there. You probably were. Uh, You might recall this. I don't know. But there there were like all these hot young pastors who were there, all these big (laughs) booming churches. You may have been one of those guys. Um, And so I was there to just kind of report on what was going on and network with people. So during one of the breakout sessions, I was with Marshall Shelley, who was my boss Mm -hmm, and wonderful mm -hmm. guy. And we were kind of going to the different breakout rooms to see which one we wanted to sit in on. And, you know, where was the energy and the excitement? We were kind of popping our heads into these different rooms. And I mean, I think Rob Bell may have been there. I know Mark Driscoll was there. Like it was that, like all these young guys with torn jeans and tattoos and, you know, super (laughs) fast growing churches. And, and there were people in their breakout sessions. And then we opened up the room to this one breakout session. And like this wave of heat just hits you because there were so many bodies crammed into this room. Like we couldn't get in. You, like if you'd stripped us naked and put lubricant on us, we could not have gotten into that room, right? So there were people everywhere sitting on the ground, like crammed into this little hotel conference room. And who's take a guess who the guy is presenting in that room it's eugene or dallas either one it, it was dallas it was dallas willard right yeah yeah and so we couldn't get in so we, we back out and and marshall looks at me and i was you know in my late 20s early 30s at that point and marshall yeah. was probably 15 years older than me maybe more i don't know and he says to me he's like i don't i don't get it he's like there's all these young hip dynamic mm. preachers here why is everyone in Dallas Willard session? Like, why are all, why are all you young guys literally sitting at his feet? Yeah. And, and he's asking me as one of the representatives of this younger group of pastors. Right, there. And, right. and all I can, all I can think of, yeah, but, but Dallas is the real deal. That's it. That's like, it. And you, you knew him like there, there, there was oh. nothing, there was nothing flashy about his presentation. Oh, nothing. He, he was a horrible speaker. Yeah. Nothing culturally savvy. He wasn't <laughs> no. like, I remember interviewing him once and looking at his pants, which his wife had sewn together from the, from the holes that were in his pants, you know, in his, his orthopedic shoes. And like, oh. there, there's nothing flashy about this guy. And yet the smell of Jesus was all over. That's him, it, man. Right. That's it. Yeah. He lived and in I, another world. And these were pastors who were like, Oh, we just want, that yeah. kingdom teaching and that presence of Jesus. And so when I look at what's going on right now and all the, all the distrust of leadership, all the breakdown of institutional Christianity, all the consumerism, all the polarization, all the fundamentalisms of all these different stripes, all the culture warring going, I look at all that and the decline of institutional Christianity and I'm going, yeah, that's sad for people who've hooked their wagon to that. But oh, if you hook your wagon to Jesus and his kingdom, these are good times. Yeah. These are good times, and there will be yeah. people who emerge like Dallas Willard. who will be very different than Dallas. I'm not saying they're going to be clones of him, but they are yeah. going to smell like Jesus. Oh, and there are may a, we smell, may we smell. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who either grew up in the church or outside of it who have given up on any kind of religious tradition, and yet their soul still longs for the things that Christ brings. And when oh. they encounter those people, 
pretty. It's going to look different. It's going to feel different. It's not going to be in big cathedrals, perhaps, or mega church auditoriums, but it is still the kingdom will advance. Oh. And, and that, that's what gives me hope. Bro, that's the most solid thing I could ever end on. That is so, that is so great. Thank you for carrying this whole interview. Um, that, dude, that's it. That's it. That's it. So, my friends, I mean, so thank you, Sky. Oh, such great stuff today, uh, as always. But I'm really, I mean, you know, I was really looking forward to this conversation for these reasons. So, um, anyway, uh, Vox, thank you for tuning in and um, excited to have uh, these sorts of conversations with others. But until next time, friends, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Bruce. I hope you enjoyed Bruce today. <laughs> Sky, as always, um, you can find him all over the place on Twitter and online. And um, and again, thank you. Thank you for tuning in and being a part of the community. Hope this was helpful or thought-provoking. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give us peace. Thank you so very much, friends. Thank you.